This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome once again to Football Belongs. I'm Richard Bayless. Just a reminder, the podcast and chapter are different to each other, so we recommend you listen and read to get the full experience, in whichever order suits you. For now, though, it's over to your host, David Davudovich. Thanks, Rich. And today we're going to focus on an extraordinary sporting event that took place in 1964 through the lens of Clash of Cultures. A VFL All-Stars team took on an All-Star soccer team, specifically Jack Dyer's VFL All-Stars against Slavia Port Melbourne, the Doherty Cup winners of 64. Joining us to discuss that match and Clash of Cultures is esteemed and trailblazing historian and author Roy Hay. Hello, David and podcast host, researcher, and South Melbourne blogger, Paul Mavrudis, who studied this particular match extensively. Hello. And series author and inspiration, John Didlitzer, joining us as always, a former National Soccer League player and ex-professional footballers Australia chief, now CEO of leading talent agency, W Sports and Media. Good to be back, David. John, this is a really obscure game, one that very few football fans are aware even took place, certainly not until recently. Now, how did this game and this theme come to be in a Football Belongs nine matches that explain explain Australia context? Yeah, thanks, Dave. I'll keep the mechanics of the match to certainly Paul and Roy, who have studied the game in greater detail than I have. And as we put this series together, it was always about, for me, trying to deeply understand the way Australia functioned and then matching a footballing moment to that particular dimension of our culture. And I have this overarching hypothesis that particularly since British settlement or since British settlement, Australia has been overtly characterized by this clash of cultures um, as different waves of migrants flooded into Australia as groups of women potentially came into Australia to offset the um, gender inequality that existed, um, different cultural um, zeitgeist were introduced at different times. And there was this ongoing wave of clashes. And I often felt that football, the way football functioned internally and externally was something of an allegory for that. You know, it echoed the schoolyard, the game, why the game resonated with me, because it echoed the thing I grew up with at school, this, the Aussie versus Wogs sporting events, um, whether it was AFL, whether it was soccer. Um, and you had this really overt dimension uh, that existed. And I felt football really spoke to that. And then coming across this game, there was a degree of ethnic differences between the groups, but equally it was these different sports that had these attributes applied to them that was quite dynamic. So that was it. there was this external aspect to it, but equally internally I felt the clash of cultures also resonated with the way the game of football was managed in Australia, 
where we were trying to tie together or sew together, you know, dozens and dozens and sometimes hundreds of different perspectives on how football needed to be managed and run and played. So, you know, the, the legacy of that is these internecine governance and boardroom battles and discussions about how we need to play football and what style suits us best. So this cultural clash has actually manifest not only in how football is embraced by Australia, but also about how we ourselves manage the game. And I, I thought this game was a really nice way to, to speak to that. Roy, uh, I might add it's the first time that the three of us, being you, I and John Didlitzer, have shared a radio commentary booth since the 2004 Geelong Advertiser Cup where uh, you provided special comments. So great to be back again together. Happy memories, David. Absolutely. Now, to bring it back onto the Football Belongs theme, uh, what what's the historical context for this match? Well, I'm... Um... I didn't realise that I was here as a representative of the first ethnics who arrived. (laughs) Um, The Scots, you can blame them for everything. Um, They were the first group that set up clubs in Australia based on their heritage and background rather than the suburb or the town in which they landed. So this game represents one of these clashes in the 1960s, when you have a new wave of migrants, of whom John and your um, antecedents, they were the people that arrived here after the war. Many cases, solo young males, uh, with no knowledge of this strange and sophisticated society in which they found themselves. A sensible migrant would go and get himself a job, get himself a house, get himself a family, and then look round for recreation. But many didn't. They went down the soccer club, and the soccer club was where they found fellow uh, countrymen that they could talk to in their language, that they could learn about this society. So these were people who were struggling to make an impression on the society in which they'd landed. And they did so in ways which quite often gave rise to frissons of um, concern, sometimes outright uh, criticism from those who had been here for much longer. So the soccer clubs are quite important in mediating, if you like, John's clash of cultures. And I just add to that Roy's um, comments on sort of post-war migration – a lot of the migrants who came, as Roy said, were single men. They weren't allowed to bring their families or they could not afford to bring their families at the time. There were no community organisations except for perhaps the churches and maybe the gambling dens or something like that. Um, there was nothing to do, really. There was very little entertainment options. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the only things they could have done is maybe go to the cinema if they understood English um, or go to a sporting contest. And, well, they might have gone to the Australian Rules in Melbourne or the Rugby League in Sydney, or more likely they would have gone to the soccer matches where they knew people who spoke their language and understood them on a cultural level would also be. And then this game pops up in 1964, which is the best of both worlds. So this game was but a distant memory until only recently when yourself, Paul, and Ian Sison uncovered it and became fascinated by it. Tell us the backstory. Well... Ian and I had um, been doing some little bits of research with various um, soccer personalities of the past, uh, one of whom was um, Hugh Murney, 
uh, famous player from the 1960s, another Scott. Shuggy. Shuggy Moon, <laughs> uh, big character in Victorian soccer. Um, he was playing for Hakoa. He, I think he captained Greenock in Scotland, didn't he? At 20 years old, I think. Could or Morton. Be, yeah. Morton. Yeah. Um, We're really testing Roy's memory now. Uh, well, I come from here, you see, and Morton were our, our worst enemies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was a Hakoa player in the 1960s and obviously coached a number of teams since then. And we discussed all sorts of part of his soccer life. And then he said, oh, yeah, there was this uh, you know, game between, uh, I think, Slavia and a VFL team at Olympic Park. And it got like 25,000 people. I'm like, what? <laughs> Ian, especially with his uh, very, um, he gets very triggered by Code Wars. <laughs> um, so he was like, "Wow, we need to know more about this. What happened? And, this? Oh. and Ian Sison, for those who have been following the podcast series, joined us on the Legend of Anzac episode. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, look, we know, I know Hammy McMeekin, the Slavia, one of the Slavia players of that game. You know, he's still around. He'll remember the game for sure. And then we chased up Hammy McMeekin. He goes, yeah, yeah, I'll play in the game. I remember everything. And we went and chased him down. And then we had an interview at Forest Hill Chase Shopping Center, um, luxurious environment. <laughs> And just telling the story about how it all came about, the big um, spiteful, hateful rhetoric of Jack Dyer, the famous Richmond Aussie Rules player and commentator and media personality, um, who challenged um, soccer soccer people to a game of soccer with his VFL team. He thought, genuinely, after watching one Doherty Cup match, that he could train the best of the VFL um, as it was then, and they would wipe the floor with the soccer people. A bunch of big girls. Yeah, it's a. Re- he said it's a. It's really a big girls' game. It was fascinating. So the game took place on November 15, 1964 at Olympic Park, as you mentioned. Twenty five thousand there, full house. So Captain Blood, uh, Jack Dyer's VFL All Stars. They had the top names in mm-hmm. the business back then: Ted Whitten, Ron Barassi, Kevin Murray, Des Tudnam, Gordon Collis, and the Slavia team for the football boffins. Uh, they had. Uh, Round ball all-stars, Hammy McMeekin, who you just mentioned, uh, Ray Baratay, Peter Aldis, John Orkey, uh, among others. Now, that game, um, let's let's dig into that game. Well, I won't ask for your memories of it, but uh, <laughs> from the research you've uh, uncovered, how did the game unfold? Well, just one thing before we get started on it. I mean, Slavia was a very good team. The previous season, they had won the Australia Cup a tournament that's been resuscitated in recent years. Now the FA Cup. Um, I, I hope it will be the FA Cup. Sorry, it, it was Football Australia Cup. But now that Football uh, Australia has shortened its name from FFA, I think since nobody's ever heard of any other FA Cup why don't we call our one? <laughs> Not sure they contemplated that when they renamed it FFA. I think we should have mentioned about Slavia that they're probably a better cup team than their Royal League team because they never won the league. No, but even they, that they, season they were fifth. So sure, they, and they knocked, out, they knocked out South Melbourne repeatedly in the 60s in cups. <laughs> I knew there'd be a South Melbourne reference in there. Won the league that year, of course. So we're ahead of them on the table, uh, George Cross... JUST and Juventus, and uh, they beat JUST in the final 1-0. Mm. Yeah, Slavia was unusual in terms of a lot of the ethnic club. I mean, they weren't a big club. They, they had small supporter base. They did not fill their team primarily with uh, players of their own ethnicity. They were primarily Scottish players. By that time, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because the, the migration had stalled. It was a very small community. 
Um, so a crowd of 25,000 is immense mm-hmm. um, for a Slavia game of any sort. Um, there were games between the, some of the other big clubs like Juventus, George Cross, Hellas, Just, that would get 10,000 or so, but Slavia were playing in front of a few hundred probably mm-hmm. most weeks. The contrast with Roma who come out here two years later mm. and there's 36,000 packed into around and above uh, Olympic Park, twice the attendance that was limited when Olympic Park was replaced. So, uh, I mean, quite an extraordinary uh, attendance for a game, but symptomatic, if you like, of the threat of soccer that was presented, not just by this game, but by the wave of migrants, of people with soccer backgrounds, which really got the VFL, as it was in those days, extremely worried about what the future might hold. And we should probably take a step back, I think, a little bit, because um, for our friends from northern states, um, they might understand how big Australian rules football is in Melbourne. The rugby league is not an equivalent sport in Sydney and Brisbane to the way Australian rules football is in Melbourne and probably in Adelaide and Perth as well. It is the only thing. Mm. Um, it is ubiquitous in daily chat. It is ubiquitous in media. It's nonstop. Um, and there... Public transport, stadiums, councils, everything was built around that ground, that game. Um, it, there was also a secondary competition, which also had a, degree, a high degree of popularity as a competitor to the VFL. Um, VFA? The VFA. Key forward, Jared uh, Dodjevic, one of the great full forwards of the 70s and 80s. That's right. Yes. <laughs> um, but by 1964, the VFL has stagnated mm-hmm. to a certain degree in terms of its uh, playing quality. Um, in terms of its crowds, mm-hmm. um, its facilities are dilapidated. Um, they're suffering from white flight. Like these, the Anglo-Australians are moving out of those inner suburbs and they're moving out to the outer suburbs where the VFA teams are. Um, the VFL has difficulties with the cricket grounds because the cricket uh, clubs manage their venues almost completely. And they're being pressed from all sorts of sides. And you have soccer arrives in via the migrant boom, the, the players in soccer are getting paid a lot more money than so, than the equivalent VFL players a lot of times. Yeah. Um, Just on that point, Reg Date, probably the Bradman of soccer, mm-hmm. massive goal scorer, was offered money to go to Glasgow and play for Glasgow Rangers, turned it down ostensibly because he didn't want to go, but basically because he could actually make more money um, playing as a nominal amateur in Sydney than he would be offered uh, at Rangers in Scotland, who at that time were the so, top so, team. I mean, the aggregate of this is that football was a genuine threat at that time. So the, foot, so the, the, the cultural um, impact football was starting to have was actually starting to threaten the... Um, hegemony that the VFL had had for the best part of 80 years. It was a visceral fear, John. I mean, it it wasn't the actuality of soccer, but it was the potential mm. of soccer that really had... The, there are a lot of people in uh, the Victorian Football League who are very concerned about the future and about the threat of soccer. Sir Kenneth Luke 
who was the president of Carlton and also the president of the VFL, he had wanted Prince's Park to be the venue for the 1956 Olympic Games. But uh, the then uh, Premier of Victoria, John Kane Sr., said, no, this is going to be too expensive. So he stuck another stand on the MCG. Um, and so uh, Sir Kenneth Luke was landed with this sport, which is, in a, a, if you like, a, a almost frozen state and worried about what might happen. So he sent his architect, Reg Pady, on a world tour to design for him and for the game the second largest stadium in the world at the time, modelled physically on the Maracanã in Brazil, which had held 202,000 for the World Cup. So this is, represents the threat of soccer which is compounded by the problems that the VFL has with the ground managers who own the stadia in which they play and siphon off some of the money, and with the clubs, who are a bunch of recalcitrants who all are interested tunnel vision in their own future, not the good of the game or anything like that. So to sort of sum up, Roy, you would say that the, the VFL and its clubs were complacent and stagnant culturally. And one of the underappreciated things and underemphasized things about what, so- what happened to soccer in the 1950s and 60s is that it took itself out of the amateur era and moved to a more professional era. So yes, ethnicity is a very major part of the change, but the game also became more professional. It, it, it changed the way it approached media. It, it paid players a lot of money. It sought to get access to better and um, more better equipped grounds that would actually collect gate money on. Um, and the VFL, you know, had been going trundling along for eighty years in a particular format. Um, and the soccer players were played more than the foot paid more than the well, footballers. Yeah, yeah. Well, because because in the VFL they had this rule called the Coulter Law, which limited pay payments. Now there were the big stars would get under the table payments, of course, but you still had an exodus of players to the VFA, which paid more, or to country leagues. Mm. So you would have leading players of the VFL would leave in their late twenties, early thirties to get a job in the bush and play footy for a lot of money. Um, Whereas in the VFL, they had, until the late 1960s, early 70s, um, basically a very restrictive uh, cap on player payments. Did they have the marquee have... rule in soccer at that stage? <laughs> I did say that. Well, yeah. well but, someone, but someone like Ted Smith um, tells the story of mm-hmm. the ex-Socceroo, um, who says, you know, Moreland, he might have been getting a couple of quid a game, but then when it comes to South Melbourne and you're playing a game, in, a blockbuster game in Olympic Park, and the players are getting cut of the gate. And if the gate is 11,000... That is a lot of money for a young man. The first ever revenue share agreement in our world sport. Ahead of its not, time. Not, not quite. It was, it was done on Harry Merksha's kitchen table. <laughs> and your grandfather was involved in that because he got paid out of the proceeds for the season when Croatia did its settling up. Harry Merksha being the former Melbourne Croatia president. President, yeah. Just to bring it back to this game, quite extraordinary uh, how it unfolded. So in a present context for anyone who's struggling to picture it or we'll paint a picture for you in any case, this is the equivalent of Dusty Martin turning up to 
the FFA Cup final, the FA Cup final, Australia Cup, whatever you want to call it, or the, the uh, A-League final series, seeing Sydney FC, the title winners, and saying, I want to put a team together of AFL All-Stars. I'll get all the boys in, Dangerfield, etc., and we're going to take them on at their own game, game. and we're going to beat them. So let's just go back to the lead into that game. And I imagine a lot of people are wondering how that game finished in terms of a scoreline. So... Let's go back to 1964 for a moment. Well, let's let's take up the lead up into the game, though, because, I mean, it's being primarily promoted by the Sporting Globe and The Truth, which is the papers that uh, Jack Dyer is writing for uh, with his, the help of his ghostwriter, Brian Hansen. And the, the game is for charity, so it's for good cause. And But they're building it up like a pro wrestling kind of tournament kind of thing in terms of Jack Dyer is sort of the the evil guy. Everyone hates him. The heel. Um, the heel. Exactly right. Um, I sort of vision it as a bit like, um, in my mind, the lead up to it, and you'll expand on it, no doubt, Paul. It's a bit like Rocky Three when it was um, Rocky Balboa versus Thunderlips, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> we have that really big build up and, but you that's, know, that's a great exactly. theatre. I'm coming after you, Balboa. Let's call it off. Oh, come on. It's for charity. Slaves out there. Thunderlips is here. In the flesh, baby. <laughs> oh my god. The ultimate male versus the ultimate meatball. <laughs> but that's exactly the way they built it up. He's, I mean, Jack Dyer hates soccer anyway, but he is building it up for the sake of entertainment and get, to get a crowd in because mm-hmm. it is a charity event. And the truth is putting in all the money to cover the expenses of the, the event. Um, the, the soccer players also get their, have their two cents in the paper, so it's a bit of publicity for the Slavia players. Um, and on television as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when it finally comes to the game, I mean, it's clearly no contest. I mean, it's 25-minute halves. The Slavia players are not taking it too seriously. They're showing off a bit. It's clear that the VFL players are not equipped to play the game. Um, they've Dis- gone, despite yeah. the fact that they had been coached before the event by the soccer players, I mean, they d- at the human level, they were mates. Yeah. They were they were quite friendly one with another, but they were both prepared to hype it up in the same yeah. way as Jack Dyer I, I think, did. They entered into yeah. the spirit of. And at risk, at risk of just an unnecessary segue, you can come back to you, Paul. I think that sits at the heart of this clash of cultures mm. hypothesis, which is: is this always this overt? or superficial weariness or uh, being fearful of this new group. So let's push back against them. Mm. But when you scratch beneath the veneer and actually get to know one another, there's a a camaraderie and a companionship that people share about wanting to make whether this nation greater or whatever pursuit they're after greater. And I think in this context, one of the big morals was the players got along famously well and had mutual respect at the end of it all. Well, they're athletes. I mean, they can respect each other's capabilities. Um, I mean, some of the, I mean, they, they, especially the VFL players who come to realise actually how difficult it is to play soccer well. Yeah, but the other thing is they are also showmen. I mean, these are guys who are at the top of their professions. They are not gnomes. They are not uh, scrubbers. They are really good players. But if required to perform, they can do it. And, And they do it. They play to the crowd um, I mean, there's this fantastic incident where Hami McMeekin, who is about 
he's smaller than I am, he's five foot nothing, you know, gets the ball and is being pursued by Gordon Collis. Um, so he runs diametrically opposite to towards the corner flag, backheels the ball to one of his mates, but continues running until he actually gets to the corner flag, turns around and says to Gordon Collis, what are you going to do next, yeah. Jimmy? And, of course, the poor man has to walk away, you know, discomforted. But showmanship, I mean, that's what the name of the game is, and that's what works. It's the kind of thing you see in, uh, in Sunday League, isn't it? The uh, man taking the man-marking job, <laughs> literally. <laughs> but, uh, despite the VFL team trying to rough them up, uh, huh? in the end... The uh, Slavia ran out eight nil winners, and uh, I and dare the say halves they were shorter. 20, 25 minute halves, yeah. and, and, yeah. and, and at half time, I mean, they come into the Slavia rooms, the VFL players, and say, well, "Can we play, you know, Australian rules in the second half?" <laughs> like, well, we never said we could beat you at your game. <laughs> You know, and look at the size of you guys. You know, you, you'd massacre us. This is nonsense. But um, even just some of the other simple, like underappreciated things of these clash of cultures, it's like in the same way that you know the England versus Hungary game of '53, where the Hungarian players come out with these very modern shirts and you know the cut-off boots, and the English are there with their buttoned-up shirts and the you know workers' boots. <laughs> The, the, the Australian rules players were basically the same kind of thing. They had these very old-style boots, completely unsuited mm. to playing soccer. Mm. Um, again, in, in a lot of ways, just sh- showing up again how antiquated and uh, living in the past the VFL um, mm. fraternity was. Um, but, you know, at the end of the game, it was, you know, they had also some athletic events like, you know, longest kicks contests and sprinting contests and all this kind of thing. There were also marching bands and, you know, various kind of performances. It was a big event, um, very, you know, raised about 2,600 pounds for charity, mm-hmm. uh, which considering that the average, the, the, I think the average wage of a VFL player at the time was three pounds mm-hmm. a game. Uh, 12, you could have asked my dad, you could have burnt like 18 blocks out in suburban Geelong at that time. <laughs> <laughs> that was his unit of measurement. Uh, um, but unfortunately, one of the survivors from this game, Nigel Shepherd. Um, we asked him about his memories of the game. He's not a well man. Uh, otherwise, I'm sure he would love to have taken part in this discussion. Um, he claimed that he won both the running events after the game. Um, if you read Ron Barassi's memoirs, he will claim that the footy players won these. Um, but, I mean, Nigel remembers the game uh, vividly um, and made the point which um, Paul's also making is the participants were um, totally professional and committed when they were on the park as before the game and after the game they were mates uh, they, they were appreciative of each other's sports personship, if you like, um, aware that they were doing something for charity, they were doing something to put the game on on the map, um, and that they represented, if you like, the peak, the pinnacle of quality on both sides. Well, that's an interesting point, because in, in his research and his writing, it makes a very salient point, I think, that this was the cream of the crop of 
Australian rules football, certainly at least in Melbourne. Mm. Um, this was not the best soccer players in Melbourne as a whole. Um, it was one club. Um, it was they're probably not even the best thousand soccer players in the world. Um, most of the Scotsmen probably came from lower league Scots clubs, junior clubs, what they call there. Um, and yet, again, the VFL players came not even close. Um, one of the interesting stories we've left out is that Ron Barassi, the big, tough man of VFL football for a decade. Barassi in his famous number 31 Guernsey, the most celebrated footballer in the land. Um, gets injured in this match. Um, he goes to kick the ball in a 50-50 contest. He has very poor technique. One of the players, I think it was Hammy? No, it was, was John Oki. John Oki. Yeah. And he just basically keeps the ball, keeps his foot behind the ball. Barassi comes thundering in to try and kick it. Starts flying over because, again, very poor technique, not understanding the physics and the differences of, you know, how to play the game. And he hurts himself. Yeah, and depending on which version of history you then read, Brassie either limped off or was stretched off. (laughs) And the word is, you know, years later, he attributed the premature end to his playing career to that injury. So, you know, the game echoed um, in eternity as far as... um, (laughs) You know, Carlton's premiership chances went for many years. Roy, you've got a fast, you've got a great uh, knowledge of this game. Are you sure you weren't at the game? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get here until just before the drawn grand final in 1970. Okay, so it this was an happened in oh. physical impossibility. Well, I mean, one of the things we try to figure. I mean, obviously, you're picking nine games that sort of define soccer in this country, and a lot of them will have you know discernible legacies um, afterwards. This, this game is so much harder to, ha- to find a discernible legacy, apart from Barassi's career becoming probably to a premature mm. end. Um, I mean, but it's, th- a, it's a pivotal moment, it isn't is. it? It is. Because so many things come together in the mid-60s, right? We've had the Olympic Games in 56. Mm-hmm. We had the largest crowd that we had for a soccer match in Australian history to that point. More than 100,000 people to watch soccer. Mm. Can you believe that at the Olympic Games, mm. right? Um, so happened it was the day of the closing, closing ceremony. ceremony. <laughs> so a lot of people were Spoiler really for one there. of our later podcasts. <laughs> we'll, we'll get uh, back onto that era in a moment, but I wanted to throw to you, John, as you've touched on throughout the Football Belongs series, events such as these, they weren't an anomaly, were they? No, not in terms of this clash of cultures um, narrative through Australian history. I, I think Paul's points from a, a footballing perspective is, is really valid in that it wasn't, there's not, this is um, a game of almost comical resonance um, and it didn't really shape or hasn't, it doesn't have a legacy that it's left um, that we need to address. Um, but why I felt it was an important game is because it did speak to this ongoing theme of Australian life where the incumbents challenge the new arrivals mm. and not just, you know, not just for their jobs or job security, that fear of losing their livelihood, but for a way of life. Mm. And we see that happening today mm. as much as we did in 1788. And Absolutely. our whole history is characterized by these clashes. And, you know, the most infamous probably being on the, the beaches of Sydney in 1788, um, the Irish arriving in the early 1800s, um, the Chinese, if you look at you know, the 1880s, the, um, the Afghan, the famous ship where we refused to allow the Chinese uh, to settle, you know, go back a little bit into the 1850s when we had the, Eureka, the gold rush and the Eureka Stockade. There's this constant theme of 
um, one wave of people being pushed back by those who whose lives um, might have to change or be disrupted as a consequence of these new arrivals. So that's something for me that's incredibly present in Australian life in so many different ways. And there's so many stories um, through our history that speak to that, you know, the wide Australia policy 1901, like we've spoken about this in previous podcasts is the first legislation passed by the new Commonwealth was, you know, the the series of laws that are are collectively known as the wide Australia policy. Um, And that's ultimately what drew the the colonies together, which, which is um, interesting to think about. There was race riots, you know, um, in Brisbane after the World War II when the US soldiers apparently would swan around with all their money and way of life and rub it in the noses of the locals. Um, you had royal commissions into the arrivals of the Greeks and the Italians and the Maltese in the 1920s. Um, you had internment in the 1940s, so Japanese Australians, Italian Australians locked up because of their perceived allegiance with the Axis powers during World War II. Um, Can I add another one? Please do, Roy. What about Alexander McCracken as the head of the Victorian Football League, nascent organisation in the 1890s? 1908, they celebrate 50 years of Australian football, right? And he's singing from the song sheet about this is the most wonderful sporting organisation on the globe. We've reached this after 50 years. We are immaculate. What more can we do? What's the first thing that the organisation does immediately after that at their AGM? Refuses to accept a request from an Aboriginal team to play football against a Melbourne club. So the clash of cultures reveals itself once again on the sporting field here in Melbourne. Roy, onto that period into in the sixties, mm. uh, around the time of this game, it was a fascinating and largely untold period in Australian football and the country. Uh, we've explored this area in other podcasts, as John Didelitzer mentioned, uh, including the First Nations episode featuring Ros Moriarty and Travis Dodd. How do you reflect on this era? Well, if you're picking on Indigenous influences, this is a period when there are three or four magnificent Indigenous players. Uh, John Moriarty. Now, John should have been the first Indigenous Socceroo, but unfortunately, between the time he was selected to play and actually taken the field... Uh, the Australian soccer organisation was banned from FIFA because they'd been taking uh, top quality players from overseas um, and trying to pretend that these were just migrants looking for a game of soccer when they came to Australia rather than being pinched from top level European clubs in Austria and Holland and and so on and paying transfer fees for them. So there is a sense in which this is pivotal Um, and the indigenous group around the time in the 60s included Charlie Perkins, better known of course as an Aboriginal organiser, the head of ATSIC, a, a major political figure. How did he get to that point? 
because he was a good soccer player, got playing with uh, clubs in South Australia, uh, went over to England, and interestingly enough, um, went to Everton, went to Manchester United, but actually got his money playing for Bishop Bishop, Auckland, who are an amateur team. Um, and therefore not bound by the rules of professional sport. One of the things we discussed in the previous (laughs) episodes, Roy, was that um, Charles's impetus to go and to study at university Mm. came when he played against Oxford United. Mm. He thought, how good is this? And he brought that ethos back to Australia and became the first Indigenous man to graduate from Sydney University. Not pretending to be on that level, but I went from Glasgow to Oxford University And the contrast between them was extreme. In Glasgow, you played on black ash and broken glass, and you spent two hours after the game extracting the pitch from your legs, and then you had a shower. I went to Oxford and played on bowling greens and washed in a sink. (laughs) Paul, going back to the borders, borders was another... Uh, theme that we touched on in one of the other podcast episodes, but soccer was making significant inroads at this juncture. Now, why was this particularly relevant? I mean, you did touch on it uh, slightly earlier on, but why was this particularly relevant to Melbourne and Victoria? And how did this clash of cultures theme manifest interstate? One of the things that we should reflect on is that the, the experience of soccer in Australia is not like for like across states and across mm. cities and across regions. So, say in the late 1940s, I think, or early 50s, you did have, for instance, in the Newcastle area, a half rugby league, half soccer match. Um, that was played in good faith uh, because, again, both sports had an equal footing in Newcastle. Um, so- soccer in Sydney has a different position than it does in Melbourne. Um, it's much more entrenched, much, uh, had much bigger clubs in the 1930s than existed in Melbourne, for instance. So it was a different kind of basis from which soccer could launch itself in the 1950s. Um, other states were a lot weaker. Um, South Australia was you know, in a much weaker state comparatively, um, and Western Australia to a certain degree as well, because a lot of their um, playing stock was based on British immigrants. And when that stops or that dries up, you know, the quality falls away and the organisation falls away. What happens in Melbourne is you have a huge influx of migrants and there's two competing impulses then. One is to do your own thing and to play soccer, to set up your own community organisations or whatever that case might be. But there's also another impulse and that's to assimilate. Mm-hmm. And as much as we focus a lot on the migrants who didn't assimilate and who took up soccer and maintained clubs for two or three generations at least, um, probably more migrants from all sorts of, from all backgrounds, you know, actually went the other way. They went to Australian rules. Um, and that causes its own kind of cultural schism um, where in order to fit in with Australian society, you take up a particular kind of point of view. You don't play soccer. You reject your ethnicity. You reject your background, your, your cultural background in order to fit in. Um, the writer, David Martin, a very strange man, but a very prolific writer in his own way. Um, he was a German, he was a Hungarian born Jew, lived in Germany, fought in the Spanish civil war, um, uh, lived in England for a while. Um, 
arrived in Australia in the 1950s. And he wrote about, he wrote a novel called The Young Wife about what it was like to be a migrant in Melbourne in the early 1960s. And he uses the framework of a soccer match. Mm. And he opens up a middle part, the middle part of the book where there's a big soccer match between a Greek team and an Italian team. And he says, look, here's a little mini essay about sport in Melbourne. Um, Australians have their own game in Melbourne. It's a very popular game. It's very physical. Um, it's adored. It captures their imagination and it's great. However, you're Dutchman, you're Hungarian, you're, you're Italian, you're Greek. They've got their own game. Um, and you know, they're going across the street. They're going to Olympic Park. They're not going to the MCG. He absolutely nails the, the cultural schism. And what happens essentially is you live in a parallel culture. You, if you're within a culture that understands soccer you, and you can talk soccer, um, I can talk to John, I can talk to David, I can talk to Roy about it, I can talk to my Greek friends, my Croat friends or whatever about the game and they know they know, but if you try to talk to people from outside of that culture, even if they are from an ethnically diverse background, they just don't know, or they make as if they don't know, because oftentimes they're, they're, oftentimes, not, they're not bilingual. Yes. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting thing, the way Australian rules works in Melbourne. You could be at a soccer match, and you could be at a state league game 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or now. And there'll be somebody listening to the radio at a state league soccer match, listening to Australian rules football. Carl's gone up a six points, sir! <laughs> and then there'll be a little ripple of applause throughout the crowd. You know, absolutely. So, so you, you, you'd remember <laughs> playing it, you know, out in Karai or whatever, and there'd be somebody with a transistor radio, you know. Or you hear a toot from a car just around the uh, ground. You'd come, What's that random toot for? And they're like, oh, yeah, Paul Sandwich has kicked one. <laughs> yeah. so two, or, two or three years ago, I was at Castley Reserve in Sunshine West. I was watching Westvale versus Banyul. The, the, the match was 8-3 to Banyul. It was a ridiculous game. And one of the players from Banyul was a fullback. He was running up and down the field. And every time he ran back, he was asking for score updates from the footy game from one of the members of the crowd. That's how much it's entrenched in the culture. And that's how bilingual soccer people are in this state. Um, you just, it's, it's by osmosis. It almost, it just it, it seeps into you. You can't, avo- you can't avoid it, even at soccer match. And people get annoyed by this. I know a lot of soccer people do get annoyed by this. If you're at a soccer match, you should be paying attention to this. But that's the sort of halfway home we live in in Melbourne. It's, it, it, you don't choose. You get chosen by both sports in a lot of ways. Bring it forward. How does Clash of Cultures play out in a modern sense, John? Oh, look, um, you know, one of the great things, and we discussed this during the multiculturalism episode, um, where... Which, if you haven't listened to, uh, worth a listen, John Aloisi, the Socceroos great, was Mm. on there. Uh, It goes back to, um, you know, soccer provided, or soccer clubs provided this this, this sort of services, or the social services that the government currently provides to assimilate new cultures who are arriving into Australia. So that, that's, that was something that soccer's, that, that's historically soccer's done incredibly well to help, you know, galvanise the people of Australia in many ways. So the question I always have and trying to um, get to the bottom of as a part of this entire series is how Australia, oh, through, through football, how can Australia become the nation it needs to be to face the myriad of challenges 
that it will face, not just in the coming years and decades, but beyond that. You know, there's there's existential uh, debates being had now around climate change and moving populations and the impact of technology and all these sorts of macro issues and how, you know, I know it sounds trite, but I think football can play a part in actually trying to um, help Australia manage some of these really dynamic challenges that it's likely to face um, historically. By, by, by giving them the examples where this has worked so effectively mm. in the past. Mm. I mean, th- this is a, an aspect of our cultural history which is not appreciated from that perspective that no. you're suggesting. I mean, we know that quite often the greatest opposition to new groups arriving in Australia comes from recent migrants because they are struggling to come to terms with their own position within society. And quite rightly, they feel um, threatened by what is happening. Whereas if they understood the history of this process, Mm. they would realise that this is what makes Australia the successful country that it is in so many ways. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying that there are 101 things we should be doing that we're not doing. But if you look around the world, we manage better than Mm. most. And And Andrew Andrew Weir in that episode uh, expands on that in great detail. That's a really good point where we are imperfect, but we need to be on the road to being the best version of ourselves. And I think football can play a pivotal role in that. You know, mm. there's, an inevit- there's an inevitability to the challenge we face. As a, as a civilization in the new world, mm-hmm. you know, there'll always be a clash of cultures because that's how, a, this civil, this, how Australia's built. This is why it's so important to get that message across now because in a few years' time, two years' time, we're going to be hosting the Women's World yeah. Cup for soccer. And... There will be nothing in recent history that has more potential yeah. to change Australia for the better. Yeah, absolutely. Than that. Couldn't agree more. And as you've seen, when we've actually taken the effort to integrate the, these new waves of people effectively, the nation has flourished. It has economically flourished abso- absolutely. Where we've taken a different view and put up roadblocks, barriers, whether they're political, social, through the discourse, um, up against these incoming. Groups, we, we we've stagnate. failed. Yeah, we failed. If you, the the longest depression Australia ever had was from the eighteen eighties into like the nineteen twenties, mm. post World War One, and you can really attribute that to our closed border policy, the mm. fact that we didn't allow people in. So mm. it's never about, and that's where I think football has such. You know, to answer your question, David, why this? You know, if we see this clash of cultures, where football can play a role is to show how football has been effective in helping the nation manage this inevitable tension mm-hmm. and make the nation better as a consequence. Mm-hmm. Paul? I think one of the things that's sort of unacknowledged about um, the migrant soccer clubs in particular and, that, and the kind of influence they've had is that the, f- the very fact that they established these clubs and put their resources into you know, building facilities and um, creating this continuity, is that's a commitment to Australia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's not people coming out here for a couple of years and then going back. Mm. I mean, a lot of migrants had that intention, make a little bit of money and go back home, but they've actually stayed here. Mm. And that's not appreciated enough, I think. I mean, people think of them as separatist organizations, and to a degree they are, right, because they're set up for particular communities. Yeah. And so it's the irony of a monocultural, the monocultural organization within this multicultural paradise. But, mm. but 
almost all those clubs, because they're setting up their clubs in Australia, they're setting, they're putting money into facilities, into youth programs or whatever the case might be. That's a commitment to staying here and, be, and being part of this society. And that's not acknowledged enough. Um, they could have maintained very strict, very separate, um, temporary kind of situations, temporary you know, arrangements. And the clubs that did that didn't last. Um, because they didn't have a home ground, they didn't have a you know a sense of permanence. Um, when they these clubs eventually come to represent, you know, districts and suburbs and so forth, um, and that will continue to keep happening. It won't happen in the same way that it happened in the past because the nature of soccer has changed back to a participation sport rather than a spectator sport as it was in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there'll still be a place for the refugee club or the migrant club. Um, the community club of, of that kind of scale to get its first foothold in Australia via soccer. But then that is the challenge for the game, right? Is how do we structure the game in the 21st century so that we enable that process to take place? Because we've gone backwards mm. in terms of the organisation of, of the game in this key respect. We are not as open and welcoming to migrant groups within the game as we were. Um, and Paul, as a dyed-in-the-wool supporter of South Melbourne Helen, finds his club on the outer, as is Melbourne Croatia, in terms of the top level of the game. But what about the Karens? What about the South Sudanese? What about the new groups who are coming to Australia now, how do they get a foothold if they cannot use the best parts of the kind of environment that your grandparents uh, used uh, to find their way into the game and into Australia? And to give credit where credit is due, Joe Gorman covered that in the closing stages of his wonderful book as well, The Death and Life of Australian Soccer, that he asked that particular question, okay, We've had this story of migration in a particular format for 50-odd, 60-odd years. What happens to the new groups who are not as equipped, who don't have um, the huge numbers that some of those communities that came to Australia in the 1950s and 60s had? Um, what happens? I mean, there's not a critical mass there to get the thing going. Yeah, and yeah. and to, in certain respects, you know, there are some of the smaller football organisations are stepping up. So the churches' teams, so the churches' leagues do a good mm. job of these kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, your uh, more independent leagues are doing this kind of thing. But there, there, there are, you know, complete Asian tournaments in mm. uh, Melbourne. The Melbourne Chinese League. Yeah. Yeah. Um, basically, because in they have been unwelcome within the existing organisation since the old amateur leagues. Or, or it didn't meet their needs. You know, if something's ostensibly socially driven, yeah. Yeah. Um, like we've, we've adopted this elite paradigm, mm. this professionalisation of our competitions, mm. whereas one of the powerful things about the clubs that produced all these wonderful plays, and it's counterintuitive, is that they were first and foremost social clubs. Absolutely. And they provided the psychological safety and the cultural... Mm. Um, uh, lubricants that allowed people to express themselves, be themselves, emerge as talented players if they were good enough. But sure, Whereas I mean, that sure, doesn't exist They as much were now. social clubs, but there were different models of ethnic club as well because, you know, if you have 40 great clubs in Melbourne, yeah, maybe 30 of them are played at a social level, and but the other 10 are hyper-competitive. And there's a, very, there's a big difference in the way those teams operate from each other. 
Um, and you know, not at the point of formation, though, Paul. I think at the point of form, well, I think that was well, a journey actually, to well, where well, they are well, now. Well, in some cases, yes, but I think in the case of say South Melbourne, um, that was established with a very clear um, uh, goal of being a premier club. Not just a social club, but, but actually... But for the end of football or but for the end of the Greek community in Australia? Simultaneously. Yeah. So... But that thread was always there. There was this thread about we are representative of our people and, you know, we're driven by this. But in terms of for a club like South Melbourne or, or an RPA... They were never about producing Socceroos. No. Yeah, but, it wasn't about... Yeah. But, but, their, but their aim was to be a representative team at a professional level, mm. whereas other clubs that came in their wake were like, well, we're more social. Yeah. Um, because there's dozens of these clubs. A lot of them have fallen by the wayside or they're playing in the lower leagues. But not every ethnic club has the same um, founding principle in a lot of ways. Um, in the case of South Melbourne, there were two competing Greek clubs. They're both under, uh, not reaching the potential. And the pressure wasn't from the Greek community. Look, the Italians have this really strong club. You know, um, the other ethnic cities have these really strong clubs. What are we doing? Let's unite for the glory of Hellenism. Um, not just to be a social, you know, kickabout kind of organisation. Um, yeah, well, so yeah. why uh, why do they merge with Hakor? Because uh, to take over the grounds, Roy. <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah, I, I think that the when we're talking about this social threat, it's about it's about more than just um, recreational. I think that's that's my point. It's about whether it's you know developing your legitimacy as a community within Australia through football, whether it's about providing a a pathway for your junior players, whatever it might be. But, but the, but the, but the question of legitimacy always, always comes back up to how do you fit within Anglo-Australian society? And, yeah. if you, and if you challenge that too much, you get blowback. And look, that's the essence of this whole whole series. It comes, I mean, we dissected it in the first episode with, with Andy Harper. We spoke about this, colon, this mm. invisible hand of colonialism mm. that shapes almost everything we do. And that's why Sheila's wogs and poofters will sit outside this game for a long, long time. And, and, and the big threat of soccer was not just that it was a rival sport with you know, increased professionalism and lots of money and lots of people coming up. It was an actual cultural threat because it wasn't Anglo-Australian. It was being driven by different cultural parameters from the 1950s onwards in large part. Roy's giving me a dirty look, Mm -hmm. but because it's a parallel culture, it's not acquiescent to the Mm. mainstream Anglo-Australian culture, say Melbourne of Australian rules. Mm Boys, it's been a fascinating chat. We could go on for hours. I do sense that. But I want to get your closing remarks for this Clash of Cultures episode, starting with Roy. Well, it's a lifetime. Um, You guys represent um, both sides of the equation that we've been talking about. On the one hand, you are fiercely proud of your heritage, um, that you are aware of the problems faced by the society and the way that you fit into it. You wrestle with this every day. Um, And yet, you want to claim that you are the best of Australia. And I would agree that you are. But what we need is to maintain the possibilities of that for future generations. And there's a danger that we tend to narrow things down and and limit our potential as a society. The best of Australia 
is the one that is open, welcoming, productive, um, willing to look outward rather than inward. Uh, and if we do that, who knows what we will do. And that's why the Women's World Cup in 2023 has enormous potential, not just for this game, but for this country. The um, Asian Cup of Nations, which we hosted in 2015, I don't know about you, but the hairs on the back of my neck were rising as I sat among the representatives of countries whose football uh, population in Australia was minuscule, but they were at that game. Proud. Proud, enjoying it, and being just as Australian as anybody around them. That's a great segue to the next episode too, or two episodes' time. I was going to say, I think Roy Hay's been uh, reading our uh, upcoming notes. Uh, Stay tuned (laughs) on that one. Paul Mavrudis, closing remarks. To bring it back to the Slavia game, um, I think the lasting legacy for of that game was Australian rules football never made the mistake again of trying to compete with soccer on soccer's terms. Um, every every time afterwards, they retreated back to their the place the place of where they controlled. They controlled the media, they controlled the rhetoric, they controlled grounds, they controlled councils, they control they controlled governments. And as long as they stayed on that footing, they could always out-compete soccer and out-rhetorise soccer and um, just keep soccer in its place. You see this a lot of times in the future when anytime there's a big soccer event, like a big touring team or a big Socceroos match, the Australian rules people try to find a way to embed themselves and leverage off that for their own good, not for soccer's good. Um, I think there's a lesson in there for soccer if you want to get your point across, you've got to be true to your game. Don't try and take on Australian rules in particular on their on its own home turf. You will lose because they are the casino always wins. The house always wins. Um, soccer is a big enough game. It has enough people involved to thrive on its own terms. Yeah, that's, right. that's very much the theme of this entire series, Paul, is that it's about establishing why we can have pride in our contribution to this nation and not feel the need to satisfy, for example, the the AFL and the other institutions that you've spoken about. Um, I'll just finish with, there was a sequel to that game in 1964. It was an AFL game played at Chanel College in 1991, Chanel College Geelong, (laughs) Wogs versus Aussies in the AFL this time. And I'm pleased to say that the Wogs took it out pretty easily, actually. Yusuf Skoko played a great game in the half-forward flank. Um, I think he was tagging Brad Johnson, the former <laughs> AFL star from Western Bulldogs, and won it pretty easily. So we're 2-0 two, two and o against them um, in that context, right? I can't believe you've waited almost an hour to it's tell that story. Uh, thanks for joining us on this latest podcast episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, I recommend you visit the Optusport app or Spotify. We can find other Football Belongs episodes covering some huge and similarly obscure football matches.